Well, we introduced yesterday what the roots of the Protestant Reformation were. Literally 500 years ago, 502 years ago, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses onto the Wittenberg door where he was a professor, where he was a priest, and it went viral. They literally took him down. The printing press had just been invented, and within two weeks' time, before TV, Internet, and Decent Roads, those 95 theses, which were simply topics of conversation that he wanted to have about the church. Yes, it was the Catholic church, but everybody was Catholic, so it wasn't like a we-they kind of a thing. And they spread 700 miles across Europe. So this was really a revolution. But I want to back up, first of all, to give you a thought. We, had, we looked at Psalm 1 yesterday when we were talking about solo scripture. By scripture alone is our revelation of who God is. Those 66 ancient documents written in three different languages. What are the languages? Hebrew. Greek and a little Aramaic thrown in for good measure. They were written by many authors from peasants to kings. The Bible was also written on three different continents. What were the continents? Asia, Europe, Africa. Yeah. Christianity is not a Western religion. Christianity, when it gets introduced into a new culture, it um, it works its way into that culture, and it even redeems the culture. That's what Christianity does. So it looks a little different from culture to culture. And we're going to look this morning at uh, sola fida, like by faith alone. But I want to give a little more context to the Protestant Reformation. Because, you know, Jesus was born about 0 A.D., lived to be about 33-ish A.D., and the church, when it started out, began strongly in Jerusalem and some other places nearby where people had met Jesus. And if we were there in those early centuries of the first century, those early decades of the first century, I might have said, well, I never met Jesus, but my aunt was healed by him. I never met Jesus, but my cousins got fed in this miracle, and they didn't even know what was going on. And what happened was the church started messing up right away. To me, that is such good news. Had the church not been messing up right away, we wouldn't have the New Testament. The first letters of the New Te the first writings of the New Testament were actually the letters, and a lot of scholars think Galatians was the first one, written to these groups of Christ followers in Galatia, which is a part of Asia Minor. And so when we read from Corinthians, we are reading a letter that was written to the Christ followers in Corinth, which is a city you can still visit today. The Bible was not written on a mountaintop and then distributed by one guy or anything like that. So what happened was there were all these random expressions of the church, and Christianity for the first hundred plus years was viewed as kind of a sect of Judaism. And, and the Jews were kind of left alone by the Romans who controlled that whole region because it was an orderly kind of a religion. It was seen as quaint and it was orderly so they were allowed to worship that way. 
though they still had to pay taxes to Caesar. But pretty soon the Christians got um, out from under the umbrella of Judaism and they weren't protected. And that first era of Christianity, uh, I've heard Christian history described into three terms, three, three eras. And the first era would be called the apostolic age. When you step out your door, you're on the mission field. There's people who don't know the message of Jesus. And that scholars, um, and I'm speaking in broad terms, understand. Scholars would say that lasted up until about 315 A.D. Where, when it was illegal to be a Christian, the church grew exponentially during that time. That's when they had to meet in the catacombs under the cities. They would meet in the marketplaces. If we were having a meeting like this, we would probably have to have six people that couldn't be in our meeting because they had to watch for the Roman guards or the local authorities. And we had to be careful in what we said because it was seen as undermining the empire, undermining the local governments. So that lasted till about 315 because that's when Constantine, the emperor, as in Constantinople, which is today's Istanbul. Istanbul is Constantinople. Da, 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 da. So that was named after him, and he was the emperor. He got baptized, and what the emperor did, everybody did. And that's when Christianity was able to come kind of above ground, and it was no longer illegal to be a Christian. And by that time, literally about half the people in the Roman Empire were Christians. And they were doing things like saving babies that were left to die in the wilderness that were unwanted, especially little girls, because they were seen as less desirable in some of the extreme cultures of that time. Then, that's what some scholars have called the age of Christendom, where it was a, a region and the mission field was at the edge of the empire. But about 60 years ago, things changed due to secularization, due to um, pluralism, and we're kind of in a new era that's sort of playing itself out. But what we need to remember, even though it may feel like your church is struggling, um, Christianity is growing. It is booming around the world, including in places where it's illegal. And uh, scholars talk about the megatrends of missions and missions isn't just white people going to other parts of the world. It is other parts of the world coming here. Do you know Christianity in the United States is not shrinking? It is growing, but it is not growing among pasty white people. It is growing uh, because like, there, there's like 20 Haitian churches in New York City alone that have just been planted over the last decade. It's growing in the multicultural ways uh, like that. So what happened was um, there were nine centers of Christianity. They called them seeds, nine seeds. Alexandria was a seed. Rome was a seed. Constantinople was a seed. Uh, Antioch was a seed. And uh, Ephesus was a seed where they were gathering. The Christians were gathering. But what happened was as time went along, most of those disappeared, but there were two main uh, hot spots or um, seeds of Christianity where they were working things out. One was in Rome and one was in Constantinople. And that kind of lasted um, up until the fall of the Roman Empire. And in 1000 AD, they officially split into two branches of Christianity, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. 
And we have a lot of Eastern Orthodox here in Michigan because there's a lot of people that, immigrants that settled here. And they're the domed churches, the Armenian church, the Greek Orthodox church, all the good food, you know, um, the Russian Orthodox church. Um, those are the, the um, uh, Lebanese Orthodox church. And so in about 1000 AD, though, there were two main branches of Christianity that were viewed as very separate from each other. And that was sort of when communication between the East and the West stopped. And that lasted for about 500 years. And that's when Martin Luther came along in the 1500s. Remember, there were other people seeking reform, but they basically all died in seeking it, like John Huss and like um, John Wycliffe. And, but Martin Luther came along in the 1500s AD, 1517 was when he nailed the theses, 502 years ago. And what happened was Martin Luther was far enough away from the power center of Rome and the Germans were fed up with the Italians. They hid him and kept him alive so he could continue producing and writing. And he's the one that really solidified the Germanic languages because it was all different regional dialects. But he wrote, translated the New Testament and then the Old Testament and the people were just learning how to read. And so as that was happening, Martin Luther was going through um, scripture, and that's how that happened. So that's your church history lesson for today. Now, scholars would say with the mega trends going on in missions and ministry and Christianity, there's really a fourth branch of Christianity. Um, the Eastern Orthodox would be the most like the worship was in the 500s AD. Roman Catholicism would be the next oldest. Um, Protestantism, which has a million branches to it, because we can't get along. Um, and it was kind of, it started in the age of individualism, was really viewed as, as big. So you get three people together and you end up with four Protestant denominations. <clears throat> but there's now a fourth branch of Christianity, and they're kind of naming this because, yes, all those um, centuries of mission work, um, people were becoming Christians, but not tied in with the Roman Catholic Church, not tied in with any one specific Protestant denomination. They became Christians um, without any of those ties. So they're kind of look. they don't have a label for it, but it's kind of a fourth branch of Christianity, and that's a new thing for church historians to contemplate. But I wanted to share a couple of quotes um, by Martin Luther. First of all, those 95 theses, we looked at this, out of love for the truth and desire to bring it to light, the following propositions will be discussed at Wittenberg under the presidency of Fa Reverend Father Martin Luther. Thus began the document Martin Luther nailed to the door. And that's how it happened. And it set into motion the Great Reformation. Now, what's interesting about this, they didn't like set up and say, let's create a great big... Uh, new thing. They just were talking about getting back to the truth. And that's one way to understand what's going on in a lot of churches. Um, a lot of churches, and, and uh, there's not just one spectrum we all sit on. There's a thousand different spectrums. And I'm to the right of you here, I'm to the left of you there. And it's this multi-dimensional thing. But we squash everybody down and say, oh, you're a flaming liberal. Oh, you're a closed-minded conservative. And we do a disservice to this great three-dimensional model. It's like one of those old solar system models on all these different ideas. But, but um, some people would say the Holy Spirit is revealing new truth. 
And others of us would say, the Holy Spirit is calling us back to the truth. And that was probably one of the most helpful things as I was coming up in ministry um, of how to think about why do you think that? And yet Martin Luther and the whole Protestant Reformation was really a call back to scriptural understanding of the truth and to the Christ event, the birth, the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. By faith, and it boils down to these things, by scripture alone, by faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And it was a call back to the Christ event for our salvation. And I guess uh, one of the things I love about this place is it's kind of a callback to us, isn't it? To, to, and some of you guys whose grandparents were in the youth group, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, it is a callback. It's a family tradition. And we don't want it to become traditionalism. We just want it to be an awesome place to launch, which is the theme for the week. But, but looking at the Protestant Reformation and these five solos, they call them, or in the, the Latin, sola, S-O-L-A, takes us to our roots. And we line up. Um, the Methodist um, movement happened 200 years after the Protestant Reformation began. It launched out of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. So by faith alone... Martin Luther, and we're going to look at a whole bunch of scripture in just a second. We stand before God on the basis of our faith alone, period. We stand before God on the basis of our faith alone, period. It's not by any other thing. It's not by any act that we do, not by anything else we do. It's kind of paying attention to that word alone, by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church, which eventually did reform a hundred years later, and they call that the Catholic Counter-Reformation in the mid-1500s through the 1600s, they also believe in salvation by faith. We believe that Christ is everything for us. I heard a woman say, and this was at a confessing, the opening confessing movement conference in, in Cincinnati, probably in 1996, and she said this. She said, Jesus is my next breath. I had never heard it like that. And I don't think I've heard anybody but me say it since then. But that's what we live. Jesus is my next breath. That's how focused. That's my hope. I mean, the whole reason we're here and we continue to be here, God lined up amazing things for that to happen. But it's all completely dependent upon God. He set it all up, and he sent Jesus, who is my next breath. And so I want us to think about faith um, in this way. Generally, if I don't know something as a fact, I say, well, I have faith. And we mean it's kind of a wimpy way that I can't really prove anything to you about it. But what if... Instead of us thinking about faith as some little wispy thing, what if our faith is more important than the air we breathe? What a way to go through life. And this great reformation that we talk about, that we're talking about 500 years from now, what will people be talking about 500 years into the future? 
It was that God got a hold of an awful lot of hearts, millions of people's hearts, as the Holy Spirit called them to faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, through Scripture alone. And all of these miniature individual reformations added up to what scholars call the Great Reformation. How many of us need that today? And, and those 95 theses, that was, there was nothing, um, it, was, it was just like the beginning roots. If you read them, and I read them, and they're not that exciting, and they're very specifically questioning, it wasn't a fully formed, fully fledged Protestantism. There are no protests just talking about the big taxes that the church was um, asking of everybody so they could build St. Peter's, which is still cool to see if you get a chance. So in, by faith alone, we stand before God on the basis of faith alone. We believe Christ is everything. Christ is completely ours at the moment of truth, at the moment of faith. And here's the tricky thing about faith. You can be like, I just want more faith. I just want more faith. You can't, you have to be honest with yourself and where you are. You can't just say, oh, there, I'm getting more faith. There has to be something about it. And here's the problem. We make faith this wispy thing. We don't um, realize how much faith we have in everything. The chair you're sitting on, when you sat down on it, you had some faith in operation that you weren't just going to like, it wasn't going to collapse on you. You have faith that you're going to be able to nourish your body when you eat. You have faith when something's wrong that there's a way to fix it. We operate, even in the midst of our brokenness, we operate by faith all the time. So, by faith alone, and the first verse that we're going to look up, and there's a lot of verses, is Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It's going to be a little bit of sword drills going on here. Because uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Who made you alive with Christ? God. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities. We have enemies. They're never our spouse. They're never the people around us. We have we have enemies. Christ, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he even took away the power and authority of death. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God is the one. It's Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. It changes everything. Christianity is on the basis of faith alone. Faith is almost like a catcher's mitt, and we simply receive it. We catch it. I don't need to work harder when it comes to Christian faith. I don't need to work harder. I just need to admit defeat. That I'm not trusting in myself anymore. 
It's good news because it means the end of us. It's all of Christ from then on. That's the gospel. Trusting in Christ alone. We can relax. We can surrender. That's the gospel. Trusting in Christ alone. And Martin Luther, his verse that changed his life was found in Romans. And then it was backed up by everything else. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And if your fingers aren't fast enough to look at all these up, you can just jot them down and make this a personal Bible study. After here, Romans 17. I mean, Romans 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Who's the righteousness from? God. It's nothing that we earn or it's no ladder that we climb. It's a righteousness from God. And it's revealed in the gospel. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that's actually a quote from Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet. Now, to put it in context, it, look at the verse right before it. It may be one of your favorites, like it is mine. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. It's by faith, the righteousness that we seek, the, the living with God, the justification with God is living by faith. Here's Martin Luther's own words translated from German. He's, here's a quote by him. Though I lived as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Imagine living your life without the current inner battle of who or what is running your life. We can't help but live it out no matter how hard we try to hide it. Who or what is running my life, your life? Could it be we say, I'm done. God, you run my life. Wow. The inner civil war that you have with yourself could be over if we could realize by faith, God's got this. I heard, I heard a pastor named Ken Nash say this. He's awesome, isn't he? Yeah. He said, whose church, um, whose church is yours? He was talking to a bunch of us pastors. And he said, your church is not your church. It's Jesus' church. And when everything's falling apart and everybody's screwing up and everybody's messed up, he said, here's what I do. I go home. And when I go to bed, I say, Jesus, this is your church, and you've got a problem. I'm going to bed. 
you know what? It doesn't just apply to pastors and churches. What does the psalmist write? We should sing this one tomorrow. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. This is not your day, despite what everything on Instagram tells you. This is not your day. This is not Bayshore's day. This is God's day. Let him have it. You just be you by faith in that this is God's day. He's got to sort it all out. We just need to be faithful and responsive to God. It's not that you live in order to get God's righteousness because it's all about me. That would be, remember like the, the, um, the extra in the movie being like looking over Denzel Washington's shoulder? How wrong is that? We're not going to see. Yes, they're playing a part. And it's important. It'd be weird to have movies with only the main actor in the whole movie. But it's not about us. And that's by faith. We can trust that. And that is so countercultural and it's so counterpersonal. It's like Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. It's the first sentence. Does anybody remember it? It's not about you. Well, thank goodness for that. If we could remember that in the midst of everything, it's by faith alone. The faith that we have doesn't intrinsically make us righteous. But God takes our faith and in turn counts it as righteousness. And Jesus said, how big amount of faith do you need? The size of a mustard seed. Which that I have seen, not in any field that my family ever owned. Because I grew up in the suburbs. I didn't even know what 4-H was. Now I realize how much I did miss out on. So this isn't just a New Testament idea. Remember Martin Luther said, I saw throughout Scripture. So we're going to look at a couple Old Testament passages. And the first one is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. I'm just going to start at verse 1. After this, this is about Abraham. And this is before God changed his name to Abraham. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign God, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Real life problems, huh? And you know, God comes to us in the midst of real life problems, not just in the midst of Bashor. And it's not like this isn't real life, but this is awesome. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Look at this next verse. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. We could go back even further. Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I just, I'm just going to tell you this. 
Noah's faith in God saved him from the flood long before the ark ever did. Noah's faith saved him long before the ark ever did. It wasn't that he was righteous and living above everybody else. He put his faith in God. I want to look at part of the Bible where your pages stick together, and that's Habakkuk. Because this is an important piece It's right before Zephaniah, if that helps. <laughs> Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. That song is so good. <laughs> Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And remember, Habakkuk is watching what's happening. He's watching how, um, why does God seem inactive? in the face of evil and injustice. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen and the southern kingdom was under attack. And the, the leaders of the kingdom of God were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And God raised up Habakkuk, who said, how long, O Lord? How long must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you? This is in chapter 1, verse 1. I cry out to you, violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And then look at what God says. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. The Assyrians were coming at them. And here's what God did. Because God's people were unfaithful. He said, I'm raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who will sweep across the whole earth and seize dwelling places not their own. Now, he, Habakkuk's still talking with God. And look at chapter 2, verse 4. God says, actually, we're going to look at the beginning of that section, chapter 2. I will stand at my watch, Habakkuk says, and station myself on the ramparts. I will look and see what God will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. You know, God loves your complaints. You'll never exhaust God. He just loves your attention, even if you're whining at him. Look at how God answers Habakkuk. In verse 2 there. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. That takes faith, doesn't it? Though it linger, God says, wait for it. You know, we went to Israel a year and a half ago. Lee and I did. It was awesome. And it was with Park Community Church in Chicago, which if you have any relatives in Chicago, there's like nine campuses on that church. It was started out of Moody Bible Church um, 30 years ago. It's awesome. And the senior pastor and his wife are archaeologists. Anyway, um, we were with, at the average age there is like 30 of that church. And my wife and I were on 
this trip and we were like the old people and uh, they were talking about being single because most of them were single. And my wife said, here's my advice. And when Lee and I got married, she was 31. And I'm glad she waited for me. Um, I'm only, I was only 25, so I got to rub that in with her. <laughs> the older woman, the cougar. But <laughs> she's, she was talking to, to these, um, these people. They were in their 30s. They were single. They're living in Chicago. Um, that's how they could afford to go on this trip. They, they said, what is your advice? And my wife said, do not settle. Just don't settle. As scary as it feels for you. And Lee was engaged before when she was in her late 20s because everyone's like, hey, you're not getting any younger. You know. And her advice, advice was don't settle. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And look at this. See, he is puffed up. In other words, prideful. His desires are not upright. And then this line, which transformed the world, because this is what was in Romans 1.17, that grabbed a hold of the heart and the mind of Martin Luther. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. See, he's puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by God's faith that he gives us as a gift. And it's one of those things that can't be manipulated. But imagine what it could be like. I want to spend the second half of our Bible study on this. And it's the question, how can I have faith? Because don't you want that for your loved ones? Don't you want more of that for yourself? How can I have faith? Why am I so tired? The fact is, so many things could be settled. So much could be settled. So many issues in life would be settled. Would not drain us of the energy involved in decision making. If we would settle once and for all who we are and whose we are. If we determine once and for all who we are and whose we are, you know, Scripture says the double-minded man is like a walking civil war. Anybody feel like that today? And there's two things that I get sick of, at least at my church in Dexter, and I get saddened by. The first is good and faithful people not knowing if they've put their faith in God. Are you a Christian? You'd ask them and they'd say, I hope so. I think so. Are you a Christian? One day I hope to be. I'm trying. That would be like asking me, Matt, are you married? I hope so. <laughs> Even though she's not here this week. Matt, are you married? I think so. Matt, are you married? I'm trying to be. Matt, are you married? Yes! Yes, I'm married. Yes, there's a person. There's a promise. There was an event. 
There's love and there's this experience now living a lifetime with this phenomenal woman named Lee Margaret Goodwin Hook. She took my name. Matt, are you a Christian? Yes, yes, yes. There's a promise. There's a person. There is an event. Yes, I can know the same thing when it comes to faith. 1 John 5, 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's look this up. It's too good. You got to be able to go back to it. 1 John is so awesome. I mean, I, 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 um, I've got a Sunday night 20-something group that I help lead, that I kind of coach with some of the leaders there. And then I've got a, a Wednesday morning men's group that meets at 7.15 in the morning and a Thursday morning men's group that meets at 7 a.m. And we were all studying different things and, and I realized I can't do this anymore because I don't remember who's studying what and I, I was always messing up. So what I did was I said, okay, <laughs> to every group individually, unbeknownst to all the other groups, we're going to go through 1 John. So now I know right where I am. I can study once for bringing stuff for every one of the groups. 1 John 5.13 says this. And, and it's awesome, 1 John is. And these are some of his concluding remarks. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What's the name of the Son of God? It means God saves his people. Believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so you might hope or wish for one day. So you can know you have eternal life. It's not putting your faith in your faith. Your faith's going to expand. It's like an organ. It's, like it's going to expand and it's going <laughs> to contract. Don't put your faith in your faith. Your faith is in the fact, the, re, the fact of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Your faith is not in your feelings either because those really come and go. God gives us our feelings, our emotions as a signal, as a gift, as a way to work through our lives. But our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in the Son of God and the fact of Jesus you can know you have eternal life. And here's my best definition of faith. Yes, I know about Hebrews 11. It's the certainty of things unseen. And then by faith, they walk through the entire scripture. If you want to read the whole Old Testament in one little chapter, read Hebrews chapter 11. The... Um, A good definition of faith is belief in action. I can have, I can believe that this little bench here where I've got um, some notes and stuff, I can believe that's going to hold me, but until I put my faith, it's, it's only belief. It's not faith until I test it until I put my belief in action. And I'm not talking, you know, a lot of us, we want to try it out, so we're like, 
we kind of one-cheek it. <laughs> and we do that with Jesus, don't we? We say, Jesus, I'm putting my whole faith in you. But then pretty soon we're like, well, I don't know. And we kind of just end up leaning a little bit on Jesus instead of completely trusting him with everything. Remember how we started, he's our next breath. You can know you have eternal life. This is the confidence that is based on the same thing my marriage is based on. A person, a promise, evidence. There's, there's uh, 28 years of evidence for Lee and me. And my love for her. It's the same thing, which leads to the second thing about knowing and faith. Acting like it. Acting on it. You know, marriages get in trouble because people start acting like they're not married. They say money is what causes more divorce, but I think it's people who are married acting as though they're single. They start acting like they're not married. It's the same thing with faith. If you don't know, start acting like it. Act on it. It's the most freeing thing you can do. Faith speaks. Faith gives. Can you speak the name of Jesus? Can you speak his name freely like it's normal? We walk around. We talk around it. We tend to keep him in our little box. But that goes to something that I um, shared last night. Is Jesus just the top of our priority list so we can check the box and move on down the list? Or is Jesus the center of our life? Or are we the center of our life and Jesus sort of just dances around the perimeter and says, let me know when you need something. We act that way. But so many of us walk around double-minded and unsure like this walking civil war. Because we haven't heard the good news. You can have faith. You can know it. Jesus knocked on the door of my life and he has come in. I know it as much as I know that I'm married. Maybe we get confused because we have this other version of what we think being a Christian is. We Americans tend to reduce it to church or to church camps. Global Christians don't just go once or twice a month to some building for two to three hours. That doesn't cut it in the global church. Maybe that's part of the reason for the, the growing by leaps and bounds in the midst of horrible situations in some cases. In the New Testament, it wasn't like that. They gathered for prayer. They gathered for fellowship. They gathered in homes. They gathered um, helping folks. They led people to Christ. That was the norm for the average Christian. Maybe it's this. Do I not speak Jesus' language? You know, when I was in Guatemala in January, um, we, went, uh, we met this pastor and his wife. And they had us over with their family. And she served this salsa, and she called it pica. And I, I didn't realize that meant really hot. <laughs> and I thought it was just a kind of the tomato, you know. Um, and, and so I'm like putting on like five big spoonfuls on, on the tamale. And I didn't feel so good the next day. And they were kind of watching me like, 
And, and my Spanish, they tell me it's decent for a gringo, but it's not that good. And, and I just missed pica. I knew picante, but I thought pica meant little picante. <laughs> yeah, poco. Do I not hear? Do I not translate? Because I can't see him, because I've let my life get so cluttered and piled up with bad feelings and way too much stuff and way too much listening to the not God voices. Hollywood, internet, advertisers. Having faith settles so much in life, it's like having a job. There's a guy in Dexter who's a psychologist, Dr. Alex Martinez, and he explains it this way. One good job solves so many societal ills, including domestic abuse, spousal abuse, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide. One good job gives people a sense of self-worth and contributing as opposed to only consuming and not contributing. Crime goes down when one person in a family gets a good job. And one of the most important things that the government can do besides keep us safe is create an atmosphere for job growth. It leaves us with how. How can you have faith and know it? And for this, I want us to turn to John, not 1 John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Maybe my favorite chapter in the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through Him. Nothing was made without Him. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came to witness, to testify concerning the light. That's John the Baptist, right? He came to witness. We have got to share what God is up to in our lives more. He came to witness, to testify concerning the light, so that through him, all people might believe. All people might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only to witness to the light. We can be that. The true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. And now it's talking about Jesus in verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Almost like, you know, the horror story, or maybe it was a Twilight Zone episode, where there's a toy maker, and he makes all these little wooden toys and all these different dolls and things, and then at night they come alive and they attack him not knowing that he's their source of everything. Anybody remember an episode? I don't know if Chucky, I never saw the Chucky movies, if they're like that or not. Um, I had to stop seeing scary movies when I saw um, Jurassic Park and had nightmares. I can see scary movies. I watched Halloween last Halloween. I, uh, but I, I watched um, Jurassic Park and then I had nightmares for the next three weeks of my children being eaten by alligators. And they were like babies at the time. So I'm like, oh, brother. God, Satan can sure get at us through our kids, can he? And what's going on in their lives. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. Now he's talking about the Jewish people to whom God had revealed himself. 
but his own did not receive him. Yet, and here's the key verse, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. True light, John 1, 9, true light to everyone without distinction. All people have some light, the evidence of creation itself. I walked out onto the boardwalk and was just looking at the reeds and the marshes and how far you can see and, and the bay, which is part of Lake Huron, and it's just incredible. It was last night when there was just a smidge of pink glow in the sky. Wow. All people have some light, the evidence of creation, our consciences. The Jews had gotten the covenant, but now it's the light of Christ. He was in the world, though the world was made through him. The world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So God's light was revealed, but God's light was also resisted, but it was also received. In verse 12, to all who yet, I love I love that little proposition, yeah, that little um, conjunction. So we missed it yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the pure concentrate of God's plan of salvation for humanity. His own did not receive him yet. On this small hinge of this word is this great truth and this eternal destiny swings. One of God's best ways of operating. You think it's impossible, yet God makes a way. Thank God that's not all of the story. He gives us this formula for faith, for belief and action. The formula is for new birth. How can I have faith? There's three verbs in John 1, 12. Believe, receive, and become. In a human birth and new life, humans do their part and then God performs a miracle and life is created in the womb and a child is born. It's the same with our faith. First, we must believe. We believe on his name. Interesting, it doesn't say we believe in his name. We believe on his name. It's like we've got somewhere to stand. He is there for us, every bit as solid as the earth. We believe on his name and his name, Jesus, why? His name is the key to our salvation. When Jesus was about to be born, God sent a messenger to Joseph and said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. In Matthew 1.21. To believe on his name is to believe in what his name signifies. To believe that Jesus can save me from my sins, from separation from God. It means I know myself as a sinner in need of a savior. You know, Satan loves to use the best things in life to trip us up. If you're, if you're missing out on a community of faith because you're hungover every Sunday morning, nobody's going to think that's a good thing. You won't convince anybody that that's a good thing to be following. But if your child is in some kind of a travel sport or some kind of a group that performs and competes every weekend. People are like, oh, well, that's all right. Now, organized sports, performing, they're better than drinking and drugs that leave you strung out. But the result is the same, isn't it? 
you are missing out on any kind of community of faith. You're missing out on what God might have for you there. And so, for me to believe on his name, it means I know Jesus can save me from my sins. It's a huge step, arriving at a point where I believe in his name. Then secondly, and primarily, is to receive him. It is to as many as received him that Jesus imparts new life. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is a savior. It's not enough to believe Jesus is the savior. We must believe Jesus is my savior. The only way that can happen is for you to receive him. That step simply involves inviting Jesus, the one who saves people from their sins, to come into my heart and my life as Savior and Lord, not top of my priority list, but Lord, to live and to reign in my innermost being. And how does believing and receiving make you a child of God? Believing and receiving is our part. And when we do our part, God performs this miracle. Look at the verse again. Verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. So when we receive, when we believe, God says become. And we become a child of God. He imparts new life. The Holy Spirit comes in and indwells your spirit, bringing with him the life of God. And his presence, his presence changes you. Do you have anybody in your life when you're with them, you're a different person in a good way? Maybe it's, for one of them, it was my grandma Hook. She was my praying grandma. And when I was there, I acted better. Not perfect, but better. When you're with somebody who somehow sees possibilities in you, don't you kind of rise to the occasion? That's part of this becoming. God saw so much possibility in you, just as you are when you're still against him, as Paul writes to the Christ followers in Rome. While we were still yet sinners, Christ saw in us. Christ died for us. And we become, when his, his presence changes you, not better than anybody else. We say this in our church a lot. Give this one to your pastor. Tell him to say it or her to say it three or four times a year. Becoming a Christian doesn't make you better than anybody else, but it makes you better than you once were. Becoming a Christian doesn't make you better than anybody else, but it makes you better than you once were. We become children of God. Finally, one more verse, and that's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. You know this. Jesus is speaking, here I am. I stand at the door, and if anyone hears my and opens the, I will come in and eat with that person. How great is that? And they with me. The door of someone's life. Jesus wants to come in and eat together. That's having fellowship. That's doing life together. But we have to open the door. You have to open the door. 
You know, there's that famous painting of Jesus knocking at the door, and it's, there's vines, and it's kind of this ivy-covered co cottage. And the gentleman that painted that um, got confronted because they said, wait, there's no handle on the door. And he said, yeah, that's on purpose, because you can only open it from the inside. You and I believe and receive, and then we become. We have the word of God, facts, not feelings, like that marriage certificate. So my question is, and this goes a little bit from Bible study to preaching, what's stopping you from opening the door? Faith? You exercise faith every day by sitting in a chair, you trust it. You don't know how it was made. You don't know who made it, but you have faith that it will hold. Belief in the existence or the non-existence of God requires faith. It's not such a far leap as you once thought. It takes as much faith to not believe in God as it does to believe in God. Romans 10, 17 puts it this way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. You heard this scripture being explained and maybe you're thinking, I'm beginning to have a little faith. Try reading some on your own. His promise, if anyone hears and opens, I will come in. Don't do it alone. Grab somebody to do it with you. He will always be with you. He'll never leave you, not just for now, but for eternity. The work of Jesus is done. It's an event. Like I can point to the event on December 28th, 1991. I know I'm married. It was an event in history, as is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you come just as you are. And his Holy Spirit gives us that. By faith is how we come to God. Martin Luther figured that out. And it changed everything. Let's pray.